You're listening to Around Comics, episode 152. Monday edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and I'll be your guide for the next hour of comic book news, information, and entertainment. Coming up on today's episode, we talk with writer Jason Aaron. Brian Salazar is here to keep you up to date on all of the industry happenings in wire-to-wire comic book news. Chris Marshall lets us know what's coming out in new trade paperback and collected editions this week. Tom Caters returns as the Answer Man. We take a look into the private life of Hawkman. Jeremy Mullins and Will Pfeiffer are here as well with webcomic and DVD recommendations. All that and more is next on Around Comics. Before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode of Around Comics is brought to you by The Overman. December 5th, Image Comics presents a final vision of the future. The Overman is a five-issue limited series that follows hired killer Nathan Fisher on a journey to stop an apocalyptic union of mankind and machine. Broken Frontier calls it a story to be grand in scope. Mark Wade says, riveting, I couldn't put it down. Give the gift of destruction this holiday season. For more information, go to theoldmancomic.com. In the fall of 2006, everyone at Around Comics was frankly kind of surprised by how much they enjoyed a new miniseries from Vertigo called The Other Side. It was the first time that we had taken note of writer Jason Aaron, and his dark, gripping depiction of the Vietnam War reminded us how powerful the comics medium can be. After The Other Side, Jason brought us the ongoing series, also from Vertigo, called Scalped. He's also worked on Wolverine, and it's just been announced that he'll be doing a four-issue run on Wolverine, as well as taking over writing duties for Ghost Rider. Around Comics is happy to welcome back to the program, writer Jason Aaron. Jason, it's a, it's always good to hear from you. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Chris? Oh, fantastic. And uh, and even better since we heard the news that you're going to be taking over Wolverine and Ghost Rider. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on that. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. So it's going to be an exciting year next year for me. Absolutely. And, and, and I wanted to touch on that. Uh, it was about a year ago that we had talked with you, and the other side was coming out, and, and you had mentioned this, the series Scalp that you were working on, and, and you, were, you were very much uh, new to a lot of comic readers. Uh, how has 2007 rounded out for you? It's, it seems like it's been a pretty exciting and successful year for you. 
yeah, it's been amazing. Um, you know, it, it, the, the other side and Scout were, were both kind of long uh, in the works. Uh, I mean, I was working with Vertigo for really almost two years before um, those books came out. But then uh, once they started coming out, things just kind of snowballed and, uh, you know, one thing has led to another and, yeah, it turned out to be a, a, a busy year for me and, and next year looks to be even busier. You know, this is, this is something that I think a lot of, of comic creators go through is that, that breakthrough year or that breakthrough series and all of a sudden you go from uh, constantly uh, scampering for work and now you may be faced with not, not more work than you can take on, but you may be faced with having to decide on projects. Um, how, do you, how do you try and pace yourself to make sure that you're, that you're giving your best work on, on whatever series or series that you're working on? Uh, well, you know, I've just been figuring all that out for myself just over the last few months, really. Um, like you said, I went from, you know, this time last year, I wouldn't have said no to anything. I wasn't doing anything other than the other side and scouts, and I was really way ahead or, or pretty much done with all of those, with both of those. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, now I'm at the point where I have had to kind of turn down a few things because uh, uh, I, I had to be cautious about saying yes to too many things. And I, I talked with Matt Fraction sometimes, and... uh you know, he says a bad week for him is maybe 18 pages that he gets written. So, you know, one book a week is a bad week for him. Uh, for me, you know, I'm still figuring out how much I can do on a monthly basis. So, um, yeah, I've had to be cautious about saying yes to too many projects. But, you know, it's a great problem to have. Yeah, does it ever scare you whenever you turn one down and you're like, oh, man, I hope that's not the last offer I get for a while? Yeah, it has. Yeah, the first time I had to turn some something down, it was really scary. You know, I didn't want to say yes to too many things and then, you know, your work starts to suffer and, and you're not doing yourself any favors. So, yeah, I've tried to be cautious. Well, one of the things that we see or, or or saw with the other side, and we're seeing now with Scalp, is that those are pretty heavily researched books. You you can't walk into uh, projects that are are that specific and not have that heavily researched. As you start to approach your your Marvel work a little bit more with Wolverine and Ghost Rider, is the is the amount of research that you have to do for those any less, or or do you research for those just as much? Well, it, it's been less, but yeah, they both still require research. You know, with the with the Wolverine arc that I'm doing, uh, I have had to, to dig out a lot of back issues and uh, check different parts of the character's history. And even then, I, I've been told uh, no on uh, different things by my editors just because, no, you, you know, you're contradicting something that from 15 years ago. So yeah, it still requires research, but, you know, it's not really the same as um, as something like the other side or scale. It's a much different research. It's continuity research, which a lot of people do for fun. But uh, if you had to do it for a job, I can see how that could be a little mind numbing to keep up, especially with X Men history. Oh yeah, because you're talking about so many books, especially with Wolverine. So many books, and you know, so a lot of them from that period when you know Marvel wasn't really maybe producing the the best stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the early '90s when everything was filmed like crazy. Uh, so yeah, some of those aren't the you know the most fun stuff in the world to read, but um, uh, still, you know that's not a bad complaint to have about your job is that you get to spend time reading old comic books. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are worse things in life, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> well, talk- way better than any real job I've ever had. 
Well, talking about Wolverine and the the I, I don't want to call it a one shot, but the the one uh, the one issue that you did bridging what was the the Jeff Loeb and the the Mark Guggenheim runs here a yeah. couple months ago. I want to talk about that issue. It was definitely one of the coolest Wolverine issues I've read in a long time because you put a very different spin on that character than we're used to. It still was very much in his his personality, but we saw Logan do things that I I don't think a lot of comic fans have seen before how did you uh, approach that issue and decide to to have logan be the type of character that he was in that um well the, the story came about just from uh from axel editor axel and alonzo and i talking and it was the, the basic idea was his of, of he wanted me to put wolverine in this situation and figure out how does he get out of it uh, and, and we kind of both hit on the same idea at the same time. And we were both thinking of, um, the scene from Silence of the Lambs where, uh, you hear that Hannibal Lecter has made the guy in the cell next to him kill himself just by whispering to him during the night. And sure. just that idea was, it's such a terrifying idea just to have that power. Uh, that's exactly what we wanted to, to try to get across with that issue that Wolverine, you know, even when he can't use his claws, uh, can be just that dangerous. Sure, that's it's one of the aspects of his power. Everyone always seems to focus on on the claws and his ability to regenerate. And, and sometimes you'll see that the heightened senses will be you know used in a story. But you really made that a a central part of that story in him using his senses as a, a way of you know his deductive reasoning really came off of that. And he was really almost a detective in that story. Thanks. Yeah, we'll, we'll bounce around here and and talk about a couple of your uh, your other uh, books since you mentioned Howard Shaken. I was going to mention some of the artists that you've worked with, and that being uh, Cameron Stewart on the other side, Aaron Guara on Scalped, and Howard Shaken on Wolverine. That's a pretty impressive stable of artists that you've been able to kind of get your, your mainstream comics uh, riding off the ground with. What's it like working with each one of those guys? Oh, it's been great, you know, especially for my, you know, first three big projects. Uh, you know, you can't have a much better start than that. You know, they've all been very different to work with, but uh, each one of them are just incredible artists and, uh, you know, great guys to learn from. You know, I still feel like I'm learning, you know, what the hell I'm doing. You know, I've only written, what, 20-something comics at this point, so, you know, that's nothing compared to uh, most guys. Howard Chaikin's been working in comics for over 25 years now, probably. He's had more years in comics than I have comics. So <laughs> it was very intimidating uh, when I found out he was going to do it. And I, you know, I went down to my, my back issue boxes and dug out, you know, my issues of Blackhawk and American Flag and all of his past work and was flipping through them and thinking, you know, well, I'm going to write a, you know, a script for Howard Chaikin. I'm going to write a great Howard Chaikin script. And then I realized, like, no, I can't, I can't do this. I can't write a, I'm not Howard Chaikin. I can't write a Howard Chaikin script. So, you know, I just tried to write a script that I thought uh, I was giving him a lot to sink his teeth into. And, um, you know, I, I was blown away by what he did with it. 
Yeah, it was it was pretty outstanding. I know. Uh, I mean, you're you're a, a great case of you know. I, I don't want to say you know the cliche term a fanboy made good, but you grew up a comics fan and you were very tenacious in how you got into the industry. And you know, we talked about it before, and, and other people have mentioned it that you basically just wouldn't give up until you got a job writing comics. How how fulfilling has it been for you to to, to finally you know break through after really trying for several years to to get into this into this industry it's been crazy you know it's still surreal sometimes i mean i look back and you know like you said i mean it's taken me several years to get to this point but in a way it still seems like uh you know it was just yesterday where where i couldn't get anybody to return my emails or uh i couldn't get any comic project off the ground and you know i still kind of sit back and wonder sometimes like how the hell did i pull this off how the hell did i did i get here uh, because, you know, for years it was my dream to be able to quit my crappy day job and stay home and write comics. And suddenly that's what I'm doing. So and There you are. I know uh, um, from, from past conversations, uh, Will Dennis was one of the editors at Vertigo that, that really championed a lot of your stuff. Um, you still uh, still working with, with Will on uh, Scout, correct? Yeah, yeah. Will was the guy who I who I uh, emailed about the other side. I just emailed him out of the blue uh, because he had, he had worked on the Garth Ennis War Stories books. I figured he was a good guy to pitch a War Story to. And, you know, he turned me down a couple times, but I uh, was politely persistent and somehow convinced him to, to give my script a read. And, yeah, and that's, uh, you know, if he hadn't done that, I, w- I wouldn't be doing anything right now. So, yeah, I owe, owe Will a lot. And uh, he's my editor on Scout. And uh, you know, as long as I'm able to write comics uh, i plan on doing something with wheel and doing something with vertigo want to move over to your other new Marvel project, and it's one that a lot of people were, were instantly excited about whenever they saw that you were going to be taking over the title, and that's Ghost Rider. Uh, what's, your, what's the plan for when you're going to take over the series, and do you have any idea on how long uh, the, the plan is to keep you on Ghost Rider? My first issue is uh, 20, which ships in February. And as far as I know, the, I mean, I'm the only ongoing writer, and, uh, you know, we've talked about maybe two years. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to be there for the long haul. You know, that's, that's a character that is ultimately cool in its concept. I mean, how, how can you not like the idea of a, a flaming spirit of vengeance on a motorcycle? It's just, it's, it's a exactly. cool, yeah, it, it's a cool concept, but it just seems like such a hard character to write. Uh, how are you? How are you approaching Ghost Rider? Um, I, I haven't seen it as a hard character to write. I think um, you know, anytime you have these characters that have really convoluted histories, um, you know, the best thing is just to boil them down to to really what made them cool in the first place, and uh, you know, try to excise as much of that of that history as you can, just to make things accessible for people. Um, you know, Johnny Blaze, you know, I, I love, obviously, if you look at my body of work, I love writing uh, tortured, flawed characters. You know, in terms of the Marvel Universe, Johnny Blaze is about as tortured and flawed as you can get. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, so I've been having a blast. I, I don't seem as a hard character write, to write at all. Now, are you jumping right into continuity of the existing series, or whenever you take over, is it going to be uh, you know a, a, a new direction for the character? Obviously, a good jumping on point for people that want to, if they're not reading Ghost Rider now, to start picking it up. Yes, it, it is a new direction, but it spins out of uh, what Daniel Way is doing in his final arc. His, his arc ends with nineteen, and 
and issue 18 has is, is got a big revelation that kind of changes uh, what we think we know about uh, the Ghost Rider. He, he's leaving me in a, in a specific spot, um, and, we're, and I'm going from there, but, you know, it's still a new direction, and, and it is a good jumping-on point for readers. I mean, Daniel's wrapping up his uh, storylines, and, you know, we're going off in a new direction. I, I don't know how much you can talk about the the series or your plans for it, but as as a general feel, are you are you planning on keeping the character kind of street level or or keeping the character you know closer to this plane of existence, I guess, or are you really going to work off of the the whole spirit of vengeance and heaven and hell aspect of the character? Uh, well, it, it'll really be a mix of all that. Kind of kind of the idea of what I'm going for is. Uh... Alan Moore's American Gothic storyline that he did in Swamp Thing, you know, where he had Swamp Thing traveling around to these different parts of the country and getting involved in these different little horror stories that kind of all connected together sure. on this bigger picture. That's what I'm trying to do. The opening arc of, of my Ghost Rider it takes place in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere in Montana with Ghost Rider uh, coming there looking for some answers and, you know, of course, getting the proverbial uh, more than he bargained for. And, you know, each arc is going to be in a different location, different type of story. Uh, but, you know, things that all connect together to this bigger picture. Uh, you, you talk about different locations. Uh, you know, is it nice to be in the Marvel Universe and working with a Marvel character, but not to be uh, uh, pulled into, you know, Manhattan and and Marvel's New York, or even in what's going on in, in the broader Marvel landscape. You know, I, I don't think that we have to worry about Ghost Rider being a scroll. <laughs> See, now you just ruined the second year of my run on the board. Thanks. <laughs> you, go. you know what I mean? Is it nice to, to write a character in the Marvel U that, that isn't caught up in all of the current, you know, like event continuity? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, like you said about New York, I, I don't think I could write a book set in New York. Um, I mean, I've been there just a handful of times, and, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the South, and I live now in, in the Midwest, and, yeah, I'm, I'm just more attracted to stories uh, taking place outside of uh, New York and L.A. and what my, you know, some of my friends affectionately refer to as flyover country. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm more interested in flyover country. But, yeah, that's what we'll be exploring. You know, and Ghost Rider may also be popping up in different parts of the world. It won't just be the country. He's um, going to be traveling all over. Well, we're in Chicago, which is the, the flyover capital. That's right, so yeah. I know how you feel. So is, uh, is Ghost Rider maybe going to make a, a stop in Kansas City? Um, don't plan yet, but um, Wolverine might be popping up in Kansas City. Oh, very Not nice. Not to change subject, but yeah. It's always it's always nice to uh, to write about your home turf, and uh, it's something that I that I always like to see whenever uh, uh, whenever our favorite heroes come to the Midwest. Who well, makes the research easy? You know, I can just <laughs> go down the street and snap a picture, and there we go. Who's your uh, Who's your artist going to be on Wolverine? On Wolverine is uh, Ron Garney. The the guy from uh, from Spider Man is going to be coming over and uh, and and doing everyone's favorite uh, uh, half pint mutant. That's that's exciting. I love Ron Garney's work. Yeah, he's great, and uh, he's he's finished up the second issue now, and it's, yeah, it, it looks tremendous. Uh, I've been really, really happy with it. I've been really, really lucky with uh, the artists I've been paired with, and I mean, you know, maybe at some point I'll work with some guy who's just uh, an asshole. I don't know, but so far <laughs> I have no complaints. I've been really lucky. That's awesome. And then, uh, and then on Ghost Rider, who's uh, who's been tabbed to uh, to take over those duties? 
it's a it's a new artist. He's a, a French artist. His name is Roland Boschke. Well, he's a new artist, uh, and he's and he's French, so he could be an asshole. <laughs> but he's not. But he's not. He's a good guy. He's 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 done. I think just a little bit of comic stuff. Nothing big here in the states. But he's mostly done uh, storyboards and character designs for uh, cartoons. Like uh, you worked on the um, that last Fantastic Four cartoon. Oh wow! Okay. Well, you, you've you've already had pretty good success with uh, with foreign artists. Garris, he, he lives in he lives in Spain, but he's uh, he's Serbian. Okay, a, a Serbian living in Spain, and and yep. a French artist now. So, are you having to learn different languages to communicate with your artists? No, they might they might have to be perfecting their English, but uh, <laughs> no. That's and 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 RM's work so far. RM's work on Scalp has been, uh, I compare it a lot to Eduardo Rizzo in 100 Bullets as far as just being a, a perfect, dark, and gritty feel for that book. And I, I can't, as, you know, obviously you're the writer, but I almost can't imagine that book being drawn by anybody else right now. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I, you know, I go back and think of uh, different artists we talked about when we were first putting the book together and you know, yeah, it just seems so obvious now that, that Gara was the perfect choice. Uh, but, you know, that said, we also have issue 12 coming up as drawn by uh, John Paul Leone. You you are just pulling all of the all of the guys out of your hat. The, uh, Not you, me, man. It's just, uh, 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 the, uh, Will Bennett at Vertigo is, is, you know, he's the guy who's clued in to, uh, to all the great artists, especially the European artists. You know, Vertigo's been doing a great job of pulling... European artists over, uh, you know, both Brian Wood's books are drawn by Italian artists. That is, that's outstanding. So that's, uh, you're definitely uh, coming up all aces on the artists. And, uh, uh, I want to talk about Scout for a couple minutes. It, it's, it's been one of our favorite books since, uh, you know, really almost since the time that, that you announced it, that you were going to be doing, uh, basically a, a crime mob story set on an Indian reservation. And, and we got to think, like, okay, that sounds interesting. And then, and the series started coming out and everybody at around comics was just blown away by it. I wanted to talk to you about because I'm from Marion, Illinois, and there are probably very few comic book artists that that would mean anything in the world to. But um, the the character in your book that is it is obviously uh, inspired by Leonard, Leonard Peltier, and he was incarcerated in my hometown for a lot of years. Well, he uh, he, he was also here in uh, Kansas City for a while. He was in Leavenworth. Uh, it's a frustrating it's a frustrating uh, case if, if you know about it. It just seems. Uh it's so obvious that this man um, was not guilty of the crimes he was convicted of. Never been able to get a break in terms sure. of appeals. I was going to ask you, um, it kind of give a little bit of background on Leonard Peltier and how and how the character that that he's inspired in your book kind of fits into uh, into Scalp. Well, Peltier was a member of the American Indian Movement back in the seventies and and. You know, there was a period back then on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota where it was just a war zone. Uh, it had the highest murder rate per capita in the country at that time. Uh, just infighting between the, the tribal government and uh, these militant traditionalists. Um, and the FBI, of course, was very involved. And uh, it was, what, 1975, I think, when... Two federal agents were uh, executed, were murdered, shot at close range after a shootout. 
Leonard Peltier was eventually convicted of those crimes um, after two or three other AIM members had been tried and acquitted. Suddenly the FBI decided that Peltier had been the mastermind and the lone culprit in these two murders. And, um, you know, I, like a lot of other people, feel that he was railroaded. There was no doubt that he was at the scene, that uh, he was maybe involved in the shootout, but there's no evidence that he was the person who committed these murders. And, you know, for this time, I mean, the, the manhunt that eventually brought these AIM members to trial, This was, that was the biggest manhunt ever, biggest FBI manhunt ever up until, you know, I think the hunt for Timothy McVeigh. So, uh, yeah, they were definitely looking for somebody to uh, make a scapegoat for those crimes. Sure, and and people are still very active to this day in to in, in trying to get him freed, and he gets uh, roadblocked one one after the other. I want to talk about about how you've used his real life circumstances in in Scalped. Now in terms of the influence of uh, of Peltier's uh, story in the American Indian movement, yeah, it's obviously heavily influenced by by uh, the situation on Pine Ridge from the 70s, and we've taken a lot of that um, and, you know, moved it to the present in some sense. I, mean, mm-hmm. I think in terms of, uh, you know, the, the morally ambiguous characters, uh, pretty much anybody in Scalps, I think at different times you can see them as the good guy, different times you can see them as the bad guy. You know, and that's those are the kind of characters that I love. I think those are those are realistic characters. Um, I just don't see, I don't see things in terms of black and white see everything as just this mix of gray and and so I love those kind of conflicted ambiguous characters there's redeemable qualities in in quote unquote the bad guys in the series and yet the good guys there's a lot of reasons that you just really don't want to like them either yeah exactly exactly and you know to me uh, as a reader I just eat that shit up you know I I love that James Elroy is just a master of of crafting these just ingenious uh flawed characters who, who, you know, it's just so so great to watch them try to struggle to succeed and, and fail. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely one of the world I've been trying to create with Scout and fictional militant uh, Indian rights organization. It's uh, talking about uh, flawed characters. I'm I'm in the middle of catching up on uh, The Wire, like four seasons of The Wire. Oh, yeah. Are you a, are you a fan of the show? Oh yeah, that, that's that, that's probably my become pretty much my favorite TV show of all time. It's just an incredible show. And, and I like The Wire for the same reasons I like Scalped, is that you know, in, in The Wire, there there are no characters that are without without blemish. And and even yeah. the guys that, that you're supposed to, it's like, don't want to spoil this for anyone, but it's like, I was even rooting for for Stringer Bell kind of at the end a little bit. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's at times a really likable guy. You, yeah. see, you, you know, it, it's it's... You feel for him, and you see what he's trying to do, and it's not working out for him. And, you know, and you look at somebody like McNulty, who's, I guess, as big a hero as the show would have, and he's a total asshole at he, times, a lot of the time. He's an alcoholic. He, he a, cheats on his wife. <laughs> and he has no qualms about about fucking over anybody to get what he wants, uh, even the, the people who are his friends and his coworkers. Sure, and, and it's, uh, al- so, it's almost a joke to him whenever he does it. Not really, but almost. Uh, He's, he's a guy, you know. He's obviously not going to change. He's not. He's not going to stop doing what he does. It's yeah. It, yeah, I love that show. Yeah, that, that. I mean, that's absolutely what what I've, I've been trying to do with Scout. Uh, you know, from the get go, The Wire was a big influence 
with that. Also, in terms of the scope of it, you know, with the wire, just the scope of that show is incredible. You get the, so many different perspectives just from every facet of, of the drug trade in Baltimore. And, you know, to a smaller scale, that's what we're trying to do with Scouts. I wanted to ask you if you have a definite ending in mind for Scalped or if it's going to be a series that you're just going to write for as long as you have stories to tell. Yeah, it, it has a definite ending in mind. Uh, any, I think any story with Vertigo, uh, when you pitch it, they want to know that you've got an ending in mind mm-hmm. because that's what they're looking for, uh, self-contained stories. But in terms of issue numbers, no. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I've never put out a specific issue. Um, and yeah, as long as we got stories to tell, to work within that framework of that arc. So whenever you yeah, get whenever you get to issue two hundred on it, and they're like, "So Jason, you got an ending in mind?" You're like, "Yeah, we're we're almost there." You just just kind of keep stringing <laughs> them along. At that point, if we get to issue two hundred, I'll, I'll just be shitting them out to pay for my swimming pool. I think. <laughs> Whoa! It'll be time to pull the plug by then. But I mean, they're different definite uh, arcs in mind for all of these characters, um, even the ones that might at first glance seem to be. You know, not that important. Um, everything's moving to a specific place. And in terms of how long it takes us to get there, I, I, don't, I can't say. Great. Well, but, uh, w- one thing I definitely want to mention uh, about Scalped is that uh, you have a great incentive for people that are maybe on the fence about reading it. And as much as as much as we and and a lot of other podcasts and just people around comics have talked about it, you you really shouldn't be on the fence. If if you like any sort of of crime drama, uh, the Scalped is a, is a really great series to jump into. But uh, tell folks a little bit about the extra incentive you. have have for them to uh, to try out the first trade well basically it's just if, if you buy it and you don't like it you can mail it to me and i'll give you your money back uh, it's as simple as that you know and i did that just because uh, uh you know lately there's been so much uh, flack and negative talk about vertigo series about how vertigo seems to be having a hard time to launch new projects and people are kind of shooting books down even before they're you know could really get out of the gate and, you know, if you look back at the history of Vertigo, I mean, now, you, you know, you see all the, the huge talents that have come through there, um, from Damon and Morrison and Ennis and Ellis and Vaughn, just everybody. Sure. But, you know, most of those guys, when they started with Vertigo, people had never heard of them. You know, people didn't know who Brian Azzarello was when he started 100 Bullets. You know, even I, as a reader, um, I didn't pick up 100 Bullets number one when it was brand new on the shelf. I think it was issue like seven or eight before I finally started picking it up. Same with Why the Last Man. Sure, that, that's kind of turned into the, I don't want to say the, the model, but it's kind of the Vertigo model is that for some reason it, it's turned into the wait for the trade arm of, of DC's publishing. And, you know, that everything does come out in single issues, but it's become very in vogue for people to say, oh, I, I buy Vertigo series in trade. And it's kind of hard to to see how a series is doing if people are waiting for the trade or waiting for, you know, two trades to come out and then jump into it. And I think that's where some of the flack has come. I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know what Vertigo's business is like. I don't know if, if anyone, you know, besides the, uh, the people that really know the numbers know that. But if there's any line of books that has a track record for putting out quality product with, with top-notch creators, I, I can't think of anyone that has a better resume than Vertigo. 
Oh, sure. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, I think even beyond just the, the monthly versus the trade debate, with Vertigo, uh, just traditionally you're talking about a lot of unknown creators and, and new concepts, which new concepts are always hard to sell. And sometimes it just takes a little bit for a book to find its audience. Yeah, but that's one of the things that's great about Vertigo is that they have books that aren't for everyone. They're I feel like they're books for me, but you know, that's just you know, that's just me, I guess. Sure, yeah. Yeah, every Vertigo book is not gonna be to everyone's taste, but I think uh if you can't find anything in there that you like, then you're just not looking hard enough. Uh, there's such a diversity of work put out by Vertigo that um, if you love to read anything, I think you can find something there that you enjoy. Absolutely. You know, and, and with, with Scout, I, uh, you know, I've been frustrated by all this uh, this negative flack about Vertigo, but at the same time, I've been um, really happy with what's been going on with Scout. Uh, you know, the the you look at just the, the monthly issue numbers, and they're not that great, uh, like a lot of people have pointed out. But the trade paperback has sold really, really well. The first uh, first volume. You know, I, I don't want people to not pick up the book because they think. Um, you know, like with a lot of new books, they say, well, I, I don't want to start buying that because it's going to get canceled at issue 12. And I want, that, that's part of why I'm doing the money-back guarantee is I want to take away people's excuses for uh, for not picking it up. I want you to have no no reason not to, to at least give it a shot. So if you give it a shot and don't like it, send it to me, I'll buy it back from you. For my, for my address and details and everything, you can go to uh, info. And I hope that you get none back, and you shouldn't. None, none so far, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, if somebody doesn't like it, they don't, they don't like it. That's fine. Like I said, I don't, I don't expect it to be every, to everybody's taste, but I just want people to, you know, to, to take a chance on it and and, and give us an opportunity. Um, you know, and, and the buzz on the book has been tremendous. You know, people like you guys, uh, you know, you guys have been plugging it, uh, like you said, from the get-go. Um, and, you know, we've gotten... Just rave reviews from uh, guys like Brian Vaughn and Brian Wood and Garth Dennis, who wrote the uh, introduction for the second trade paperback, which comes out in February. Okay. And I'm having a blast doing it. So, so um, <laughs> well, we want to talk re- real quickly about your other uh, your other series that uh, that came out right before Scalp, and that was uh, the other side. Everyone's hopefully had a chance to uh, to read it. How's the how's the feedback been on the other side? It's been great. I. Uh, you know, I hear from a lot of people who that's just been one of their favorite books for the last couple of years, which is incredibly gratifying. And um, also, uh, you know, I've been trying to do a lot of store signings, uh, small conventions lately, and uh, seems like every one of them, there are one or two vets who, Vietnam vets, who'll come to the show who've read the book, which of course is always incredibly gratifying. So yeah, the reception to that book has been incredible, and you know, that's that that book is the reason I have a comic book writing career. That's, that's kind of the thing that started everything for me. Sure, and and, and I don't want to go on uh, too much about the other side, but I, but I do want to let people know that if you're interested in hearing more about the other side, we talked about it really extensively about a year ago, and you can still grab that uh, that podcast in in our archives. But uh, we talked a lot about uh, about the book, and uh, Cameron Stewart, uh, the artist, actually took a trip to Vietnam to to get a lot of source material for the for the art and. There great stories um, about your uh, it's cousin, correct? That yeah. uh, that yeah. wrote uh, that wrote the book that would eventually become Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, and you know, there's info about all that in the trade paperback. Uh, there's a piece I wrote about my cousin. Uh, there's photos and uh, Cameron's travel travel log from his, his trip to Vietnam. 
there's an introduction by uh, Captain Del Dye, who is the technical advisor on Platoon and Saving Private Ryan. Um, I was really, really happy with the with that trade paperback. Well, hey, I want to talk about uh, one other uh, writing project of yours before we wrap up here, and that is the uh, uh, the Top Cow Pilot series and uh, and your work on Ripclaw. Yeah, well, I, well, I did the the first book in the pilot season mm-hmm. uh, program, which was a Ripclaw one shot, and uh, starting sometime next month, I think is when fans can go vote as to which of those one shots they'd like to see more of. Now, if if that if that wins, will you be writing that series? Is that how how does that work? Yeah, if it if it wins, I'll definitely be writing it. it you know, it would be a mini series. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely be writing next year. They're not going to pull a fast one where you you vote for the book and then they bring on a totally different creative team. Unless they pull a fast one on me. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, I'm I'm not doing that. Yeah, I would definitely be on board if if, if it wins. Now, now, Ripclaw, kind of a kind of an interesting combination of uh, a couple of your projects. It's kind of like a Wolverine meets Scout. That's right. Yeah, because uh, Ripclaw's a very Wolverine-like character, but he's a, a Native American. Yeah, well, and you know, with with the with the book, I, I tried to give him uh, you know a different kind of slant, to distance him a little bit from from Wolverine. Um, you know, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, if you read it, it's, you know, it's also kind of reminiscent of the other side in terms of. Uh, the way we mix the, the you know gritty, gritty reality with the supernatural elements. I think you uh, you surprised Sal on on that book. He uh, uh, he came, we we have our top of the stack every week, and, yeah. and and we talk about Sal and I. I work together, and I'm like, what what's your top of the stack? And he looked at me, he's like, Ripclaw. I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, Jason Aaron wrote it. I'm like, get out of here, and uh, and he made me read it and really enjoyed it. it had a had a really fun uh, twist ending uh, that uh, that you may or may not have, have seen coming, but I, I thought it was a uh, a really fun twist at the end there. Uh, what what's it like whenever and, and you did it with Wolverine as well? Um, what's it like just jumping into a a one shot story where it's a one and done story? Do you like doing that? Yeah, I like doing both of those. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that all the time. It's nice to be able to to spread things out a little bit. But you know, yeah, with those two in particular, I had a great time. Uh, you know, the Wolverine. It was great to be able to tell a story that was uh, a little bit different than than a lot of the Wolverine stories lately, and had a different focus. But you know, that said, the, the Wolverine story I'm writing right now, the four parter, is very different from that one shot. It's you know very Wolverine centric. Uh, flashes back to a different point in its history and it's uh, reaction driven so you know I'm just, I just love doing different things I love uh, you know mixing stuff up um, the first book I did after working on the on the other side and scalped was uh, the Friday the 13th two-parter I did for Wildstorm oh that's right um, which was a blast Pretty pretty easy to find uh, find research material for that. Was it uh, Friday the Thirteenth uh, marathon night at your house? Getting ready for that? No, I saw I watched all those religiously back when I was you know thirteen fourteen. So I had my research down pat for that. <laughs> that explains so, yeah, that, that was, explains a lot about you, Jason. Great, thanks. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> that was a compliment. <laughs> no, it was great to go from you know like we talked about the other side and scouts were both pretty research heavy. Um, to do it Friday the 13th where I was like, great, I don't need to do anything for this.
Well, Jason, it is always a pleasure talking with you. It's been a lot of fun to to see everything that that's happened to you in in the past year and all the great work that you've been putting out. And it looks like 2008 is going to be even more exciting as uh, we see you get into a little bit more mainstream stuff, but uh, but still stay with uh, with your series at Vertigo. Yeah, it should be an exciting year. And uh, February is the going to be a big month for me. That's when Wolverine, uh, Ghost Rider, and the second scalp trade all hit that month. So February, Jason Aaron month next year. <laughs> Mark it on your calendar. All Jason Aaron all the time. All right, well, Jason, once again, thank you so much, and we'll check back with you in February and uh, and and check in on all the, the cool projects and see what else is coming up for you later in the year. That sounds great. Thank you, Chris. All right. Have a good night, man. It's always good to hear from Jason Aaron. I'm sure you'll hear from him again on the show. And definitely check out his work at the local comic shop. You will thank yourself for doing it. And now it's time to get you caught up on the week's events. Here is Around Comics' own Brian Salazar with Wire to Wire Comic Book News. This is Wire to Wire Comic Book News Top Headlines for the week of November 12, 2007. Longtime Marvel penciler Mark Bagley, whose current exclusive contract with the publisher reportedly expires at the end of this year, will move to DC Comics to take on an undisclosed high-profile project, likely sometime in 2008. Bagley's name has been synonymous with Marvel Comics since the literal start of his career, going back to 1986. At the time, the then-aspiring 27-year-old artist submitted an entry to Marvel Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter's Marvel tryout book, winning the penciling entry, which led to his first professional assignments with the publisher. Random House's Keith Clayton has acquired world English rights from Marvel Entertainment to four books based on their iconic superhero Iron Man. Two books will be direct tie-ins to the Iron Man film from Marvel Studios, including the official adult novelization of the movie, and a non-fiction title featuring an inside look at the upcoming film, as well as material on the creation of the character and his history in the comic book world. They will be released in the weeks prior to the film's U.S. debut on May 2, 2008. Two books will be original Iron Man novels focusing on the classic Iron Man character and will be released at a future date. Taking a cue from Radiohead and other forward-thinking music acts, digital graphic novel publisher Ambrosia Publishing is now offering you the opportunity to pay what you want for the digital versions of the following graphic novels at the Ambrosia Publishing Store. Clockwork Creature, Chapter 1 by Kyle Stram, Smuggling Spirits, Book 1 by Ben Fisher and Mike Henderson, and They Do Not Die by Scott O. Brown and Horatio Lalia. Each title is available in PDF, CBZ, or ebook format, with some being available for your iPod or PSP. 
Marvel Comics has unveiled their long-awaited digital comics service. The comic book industry makes a long-delayed step into cyberspace this week when Marvel Comics unveiled the industry's first online archive of more than 2,500 back issues, including the first appearances of Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the Incredible Hulk. Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited will offer the archive in a high-resolution format on computer screens for $59.88 a year or at a monthly rate of $9.99, all available at marvel.com. While the comics cannot be downloaded and must be viewed at the marvel.com website, it is a step in the right direction for digital distribution. Dabble Brothers Publishing and Del Rey, an imprint of Valentine Books, have announced a new agreement for distribution of Dabble Brothers graphic novels into the trade book market. In spring 2008, the popular literary comic book publisher will launch comic book adaptations of three major properties, New York Times bestselling author Dean Kuhn's Frankenstein, Prodigal Son, Jim Butcher's bestselling The Dresden Files, and George R.R. R. Martin's Wild Cards. The graphic novel versions to be distributed by Del Rey will go on sale in summer-fall of 2008. After 25 years of being published in a traditional saddle-stitched magazine format released three or four times a year, the award-winning Love and Rockets comic book series will go on hiatus effective immediately and return next summer in its third incarnation as a series of all-original graphic novel-length releases. Each annual volume will comprise at least 100 pages of all-new comics, split evenly between its creators. This new format will allow the brothers to present longer stories without having to chop them down into bite-sized pieces, said Fanographics publisher Gary Groth. In today's graphic novel-orientated world, readers and cartoonists are increasingly impatient with this sort of serialization, especially in the case of Love and Rockets, where because of the split nature of the book, each artist has only 15 pages. Four months after Marvel Comics unexpectedly killed off the red, white, and blue leader of the Avengers, Captain America, he reappears in a comic made exclusively for U.S. soldiers. Captain America is not being resurrected in Spirit of America, said Bob Sabowney, Marvel's Vice President of Business Development. But when the AAFES asked Marvel officials to include the hero in the latest military issue to be released before Veterans Day, they agreed because no other character better symbolizes the heroism and patriotism of the American soldier. One million copies of the New Avengers The Spirit of America, the fifth in Marvel's series for the military, will be available free at military base stores worldwide. Some recent signing news from Marvel and DC. Vanish artist Daniel Acuna, the now formerly DC exclusive artist who has done the majority of his American work for DC Comics, will be headed to Marvel Comics in 2008. Best known for his work on titles like Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters and his cover work, Acuna was slated to be the regular artist on DC's The Flash along with the returning writer Mark Wade, but his run turned out to be abbreviated, perhaps due to his taking a Marvel assignment. Meanwhile, DC Comics has signed writer-artist Keith Giffen to an exclusive contract. Giffen has been a longtime creative voice for DC, creating characters such as Lobo and Ambushbug, as well as contributing to seminal runs of Legion of Superheroes and Justice League as both a writer and an artist in the 80s and 90s. Recent projects have included creating and writing the current Blue Beetle series and writing the Wildstorm series Midnighter and the DCU Limited series 52 Aftermath, The Four Horsemen. Hasbro has solicited proposals from potential publishers of the next G.I. Joe comic book license beginning this past summer and will be making a decision on a license sometime after the end of the year. Rumors began to circulate in recent weeks suggesting the license, which has been with Devil's Due Publishing since 2001, was available. Mike Serbian, a representative of Hasbro's public relations agency Hunter PR, recently confirmed it was indeed up for grabs. 
The G.I. Joe license is up for renewal. Hasbro's partner, Devil's Due, will be publishing the American's Elite storyline until July of 2008. Hasbro solicited proposals at Comic-Con International, currently have a number of them in-house, and will be deciding on the Joe Comics partner post-Thanksgiving. No decisions have yet been made. Based on sales of the top 300 comics, comic sales by Diamond to Comic Stores in October were up 20% over October 2006. Graphic novels were up a more modest 6%, bringing the total growth rate for the month to 17% versus October of 2006. The increase in comic sales was not due to strength at the top of the list, however, where results were uninspiring, but big-time growth in the bottom half of the list brought up the overall growth rate. For example, Kong, King of Skull Island number 0, which was the number 300 title in October 2007, sold more than twice as many of the number 300 title in October 2006. In fact, you had to go up 64 ranks to the 236th title in 2006 to match the sales of a 2007 title. Those are your top comic book headlines. This has been Wire to Wire Comic Book News. For the week ahead, here is Chris Marshall from the Collected Comics Library with this week's new trade paperback and collected edition releases. So it's Thanksgiving here in the United States, and it officially kicks off the Christmas buying season. So while you're out shopping this Black Friday, why not go out and pick up your favorite comics from DC and Marvel and the rest? And here's a little rundown of them for you. Jack Kirby's Fourth World Omnibus Volume 3 is out. This collects the New Gods 7 through 10, Forever People 7 through 10, Jimmy Olsen 146 through 148, and Mr. Miracle 7 through 10. 52 Volume 4, the trade is out, collecting weeks 40 through 52. That is for 20 bucks. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it looks like DC decided to wait for the fourth volume of 52 to release this book. This is World War III, the trade for 18 bucks, and this collects the four parts of World War III, of course. Batman Death in the City trade paperback is out, and this is for 15 bucks. Collecting Detective Comics 827 through 834. Supergirl Identity for $20. Collecting Supergirl 10 through 19. And the Infinite Holiday Special Number 1. We also have American Version Volume 3 for $13. That collects 10 through 14 of that series. Over at Marvel, we've got Ultimates 2, the hardcover, collecting 1 through 13, and Ultimates 2, number 1, the variant sketch edition. That is only for $35. Annihilation Book 3, the trade paperback, is out, collecting Annihilation 1 through 6, Annihilation Heralds of Galactus 1 and 2, 
and Annihilation Nova Core files for 25 bucks. Also from Jeff Parker, we've got X-Men First Class Tomorrow's Brightest Trade collecting that eight-issue series. That is only for 20 bucks. And Spider-Girl presents Wild Thing Crash Course Digest. This collects Wild Thing 0 through 5 and is for 8 bucks. A couple other books that are supposed to come out from Marvel, but they are not on this week's preliminary list that I got over at Comic List, would be X-Men God Loves Man Kills, the premier hardcover classic edition. This is the variant volume number 7. New Avengers Volume 1, the hardcover, both the regular and the variant edition. Marvel Adventures Fantastic Four Volume 1, the hardcover. And we also have a second printing of a masterwork. This is Fantastic Four Volume 7 and the variant edition 34. This collects Fantastic Four 61 through 71 and annual number 5 of the original Kirby Lee run. Over at Dark Horse, we've got Hellboy Volume 7, The Troll Witch, and Others Trade for $18. From Image, we got Madman Volume 2, The Trade, collecting Madman Comics 1 through 11. It is 18 bucks, and it is a whopping 328 pages. We are also expecting from IDW the complete Chester Gould's Dick Tracy Volume 3, Volume 1, and Volume 2 also get a second printing this week. And in case you haven't picked up your copy of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the Black Dossier, uh, you may want to do that. I checked with my local comic book shop, and Brian, who's a good friend of mine who owns a store, told me that he had ordered eight copies that he was going to put on his shelf, and all eight of those sold out last Wednesday in a matter of two hours. So if you didn't get your copy, boy, it's sure a hot ticket item, and you may want to pick it up as you know as soon as possible. As for me, I have not gotten my copy in my hands yet, but I do have it coming from DCBS, and you're probably wondering, Chris, which one did you pick up? And as much as I like the variant cover on the black dossier, I have to say that I went with the black cover because, well, my black dossier is going to be black and not pink. So for Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library, and Happy Thanksgiving. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklists of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. For all of the traditionalists like myself that still like to buy their comics in single editions, here is a preview of what is going to be hitting comic shops this Wednesday. Please note that these are just highlights of issues that will be coming out this week, and shipping dates are subject to change without notice. From Dark Horse Comics, we have the Umbrella Academy, Apocalypse Suite, number three of six. This is the uh, Gerard Way, the front man for My Chemical Romance, and Gabriel Ba of Casanova fame. This is their miniseries. Uh, coming out from DC Comics, we have uh, the continuation of the Legion storyline in Action Comics with number 859. And around comics favorite, Brave and the Bold number 8 is uh, due out this week, as is Will Pfeiffer's uh, Catwoman number 73. We also have the Greg Rucka written Checkmate number 20. Ex Machina comes out under the uh, Wildstorm imprint. The Flash number 234. 
Mike Norton takes over art duties on Metamorpho Year One, number four, and that is four of six. Also have the program number five of twelve. Shadow Pack keeps rolling on with issue nineteen. The Spirit hits number eleven as we prepare for the departure of Darwin Cook. And we'll wrap up our DC highlights with Rick Veach's Army at Love number nine. Dynamite Entertainment releases The Boys number 12 this week. Moving over to Image, we have Casanova number 11. That's the Matt Fraction and now Fabio Moon drawn Casanova. Godland number 20. The Walking Dead number 44. And a special note, one that I've really been looking forward to, is B. Claymore's Hawaiian Dick number one comes out this week. And that is the first in the ongoing Hawaiian Dick series. Uh, if you're a fan of noir style PI detective stories, check out Hawaiian Dick. And for me at least, it looks like a pretty light week at Marvel. We have Captain America number 32, Powers number 27. Finally, the Ultimate Vision series wraps up with number 5 of 5. We have Wolverine Origins number 19 and What If Annihilation. And wrapping up this week's highlights, uh, I want to mention that back issue number 25 from Tomorrow's Publishing will also be coming out on this Wednesday. So enjoy your trip to the comic shop this week and your long holiday weekend if you have one. And uh, always remember to ask your local comic shop manager or owner if the Thanksgiving holiday will affect their shipping dates for the next week. Sometimes that'll happen and you won't get your new books on the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. So uh, make sure and ask them and that will uh, hopefully save you some problems in the following week. So have a good week at the local comic shop. Perhaps the hardest question in all of comicdom to answer is, what is the deal with Hawkman? Uh, I, I don't understand it. I don't know anyone that does understand it. If they say they do, they're probably lying to you. It's one of the most convoluted histories of any character in comics. To, to even try and go to the Wikipedia page and figure it out is, is confusing enough. But the character itself has been depicted in a lot of different ways. And to, to get into the mind, to try and understand the character of Hawkman, our very own Tom Caters is here to give you a reading from Inside Hawkman's Diary. A reading from Hawkman's Journal, July 1973. Even though I helped build this satellite, I feel like a stranger in my own home. I know the other League members make fun of me behind my back. I found that Nixon bumper sticker that was attached to my harness. I'm an alien. I don't even vote for the president. Yet, my beliefs seem to alienate some of the other members. Especially Green Arrow. I know he's been trying on my wings lately, because the straps are all adjusted. They're way too tight when I put it on, and he's always the one that laughs the hardest when he sees me struggling to fix it. 
He also keeps leaving his Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young albums on the record player. Now me, I'm I'm more of a old school big band type guy or marching band. A good Philip Sousa song is all I need to get going. But he he likes his liberal stuff, and I'm cool with it. I just wish, you know, he'd get his own record player and he wouldn't use the one in the main room. It's got my name labeled on it. He borrows my mace without asking. I know because I always find it in his room or in his office or in the bathroom in his office. You shouldn't take another man's mace into a bathroom, ever. Just never. He also used my Thanagarian time shoes to trim his beard. I noticed because there's all kinds of little blonde hairs caught in it. It wouldn't be that bad except he even forgot to oil it after he used it, so it's just going to get rusty. And those things are expensive. It's not like I can just make one whenever I want. I have to order those way ahead of time. Alas, I think my time here is coming to an end. I should go. The only thing that keeps me around is my good friend Aquaman. He too feels like an outsider. Many a night I've sat and watched him sleep in his room. I don't know if he knows. I'd like to think he would. The way that he doesn't mention it to anyone. When I climb into the bed with him and get right next to him, but never touch, never ever touch him. I like to think that even though I'm a creature of the air and he's a creature of the water, that a uh, real, real meeting of the minds. I have to go to bed now. Good night. Around Comics is proud to help support the Hero Initiative. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. For more information, visit www.heroinitiative.org or call 310-909-7809.
Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. Now you can find literally thousands of webcomics online. Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching on the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of webcomics. Okay, this week I'd like to kick it a little bizarro. I want to recommend Dinosaur Comics by Ryan North. This comic is really odd and really quirky, but a lot of fun. Each strip features the exact same six panels of crudely drawn dinosaurs each and every time. They're shown talking amongst themselves, stepping on a house, stepping on a small woman, but the only thing that changes with each new update is the dialogue. Does that sound boring or uncreative? It's not at all. Dinosaur Comics is a shining star of the constrained comics movement. Sequential art that places some fundamental constraint on form in much the same way that haikus or sonnets are constrained forms of poetry. Characters include T-Rex, who's like a really big know-it-all. Utah Raptor is always shown in the later panels and generally takes an adversarial stance against T-Rex's daily diatribe. And then there's a third, very friendly female dinosaur. By working in this constrained architecture, Ryan North deserves some mad props for coming up with creative and funny stuff in such a tightly defined boundary. Each comic contains three hidden easter eggs. The first one can be seen by holding the cursor over the comic itself. The second is found in the subject line of the comments email address. And the third is the comic's title, which can be found in the RSS feed or the archive page. Dinosaur Comics was named one of the best web comics by the Web Comics Examiner, and it won Best Anthropomorphic Web Comic in the 2005 Web Cartoonist's Choice Awards. Dinosaur Comics has seen print in two collected volumes, as well as several newspapers. You can find it at quants.com, Q-U-A-N-T-Z.com. Once there, click the giant ugly dinosaur to see the comics. New comics are posted on weekdays, and if you're interested in the Constrained Comics movement, check out The Angriest Dog in the World by David Lynch. It was one of the very first Constrained Comics. It appeared from 1983 to 1992 in the LA Weekly. You can find scans of the work at davidlynch.de backslash angry.html. That address one more time is davidlynch.de backslash angry.html. For Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu.
It's Tom, you ask, and I tell you. This week, I'm in Detroit. It's the middle of the day. I've had a few drinks, hanging out by myself, waiting for my girlfriend to be done doing something. So I figured I'll record this, another Answer Man segment for you. So let's get to it. This question this week is from Chewy. Dear Tom, this is a great question. Congratulations. No doubt many fans want to know, why can there never be a Marvel-DC crossover? seems from what I've heard that there's no animosity between the two publishers. Stanley has even been allowed to interpret DC's characters to his fitting, yet the two universes have never clashed, as far as I know. It seems to me that it would be the ultimate concoction. Spider-Man meets up with Batman, Superman vs. the Hulk, Supergirl does Ms. Marvel, etc. The two companies always seem to want to outdo each other, but only wind up doing the same things over and over. Remember when WCW and WWF were two separate entities? One day they merged and the possibilities grew. Why can't that happen with Marvel and DC? Thanks, Chewie. I love this question because it's like someone came up to me and said, I'm hungry and I want this. And then they described pizza. And then I was able to take them into a kitchen and give them a piping hot pizza. Because Chewie, my friend, there has been plenty of crossovers between Marvel and DC. Uh... You gotta remember, uh, even back towards uh, the beginning of comic book dumb crossovers have been important. You know, the JSA was created out of an intercompany crossover, uh, and over the years there have been many unofficial um, crossovers between Marvel and DC. Uh, the Squadron Supreme, uh, which I believe Roy Thomas created, was very much an homage of the Justice League uh, in the Avengers. Uh, the event in um, in Justice League, there was an issue once where uh, I think it was a Len Wein written one where uh, they went to Rutland, Vermont, and there was a Halloween costume party, and people were dressed up like Marvel characters, and they ended up fighting uh, the JLA. So you had a little bit of a crossover there. Uh, Characters like uh, the Champions of Angor, um, like Blue Jay and uh, Silver Sorceress, are also uh, homages to the Avengers, um, which is sort of interesting because in the the new miniseries uh, Lord Havoc and the Extremists, you can kind of see... that takes place on supposedly based on the same earth where the champions of Angora are from, and it's also sort of an homage towards Civil War, so you can see a little bit of that playing around with crossovers there. Uh, it's been going on even past that. Uh, the Imperial Guard and the X-Men are homages to the uh, Legion of Superheroes. Uh, but, I mean, those are all homages. Those aren't official. They're just sort of in-jokes for people in the know. Uh, the first official crossover between Marvel and DC was actually a Wizard of Oz adaptation. It didn't use any of the characters from either one of the universes, but it sort of paved the way um, in the late 70s, early 80s for more uh, official crossovers, like uh, Superman versus The Amazing Spider-Man in 1976 was the first official one. We had a Marvel Treasury Edition number 28, which is uh, Superman and Spidey fighting Parasite and Doctor Doom. And that was 1981. I find it very odd. Uh, Parasite and Doctor Doom wouldn't necessarily be the ones I would pick. Uh, I would pick Lex Luthor and Doctor Doom, but eh, that's me. I didn't write it, so what? You had DC Special Series t- number 27 with Batman versus the Incredible Hulk. I've never read this, and in fact, I don't even know how it ends. But I bet Batman wins because he had time to prep, and that was in 81. You had uh, X-Men and the uh, New Teen Titans in 82, and then for a number of years, you didn't see any crossovers between the big two. They, they had planned a JLA Avengers, I think, like in 83, and uh, George Perez had even started um, drawing it. And there was some tension between Jim Shooter and uh, I believe Dick Giordano at the time was in charge of DC. They couldn't iron out the story, and it just sort of faded away. Uh, 
And then once the boom of the 90s happened, you saw a lot of crossovers. So Batman and Punisher, like in 94, you saw it a couple times. You had uh, Darkseid versus Galactus. You had Spider-Man and Batman, Green Lantern and Silver Surfer. Uh, if you look at the list, God, there's tons. And it's not just uh, you know Marvel and DC. At that same time, you had a lot of Image and Wildstorm characters crossing over. I, I mean, I think there was more Supreme crossovers than there were actual issues of Supreme. Uh, my favorite one being Archie Meets the Punisher, which came out in 94. Uh, and I think there was too many of them. Uh, sort of the fun of a crossover comes from the fact that you haven't seen it before. Uh, so when you're seeing it constantly, uh, it sort of burns out and kind of doesn't have any flair to it. You know, you had stuff like the Amalgam Comics, which was literally taking Marvel characters and DC characters and putting them together and telling stories. And while it's kind of a cool idea... It doesn't have legs to it, really. Uh, it becomes a little too... I don't want to say in-jokey, because it's not like a joke, but I think the characters have their own ornate, ornate, you know, innate being to them. And part of the fun of a crossover is seeing how uh, a character like Spider-Man is very different from a character like Superman. And you play up those differences in that story, but the more you see them together, the more that sort of gets mixed and it's not as fun to see those differences played out anymore. Uh, I do uh, I do have a couple crossovers, actually, that I really enjoy a lot. There's a Batman, Hellboy, and Starman, I think from the late 90s, early 2000s, that I really enjoyed. And my favorite is JLA Avengers by uh, Busick and George Perez. Uh, it has sort of an absolute edition out now. Uh, I don't know how hard it is to find. It came out in, like, four prestige-style uh, issues, uh, to me, that is my favorite crossover of all of them. It's very well written, very well drawn. Uh, I mean, Perez, you know, say what you will about him. He's the king of jamming a thousand things into a page. So you get to see the whole Marvel universe and the whole DC universe. Uh, you get to see characters interact. You, you get to see, one, you know, what Superman thinks of the Marvel universe. He thinks the heroes of the Marvel universe don't do enough. And Captain America thinks that the DC Universe heroes maybe do too much uh, for humanity. So you see those sort of crossing between the two. You get great, you know, fight sequences. You can see, you know, Flash whoop up on Quicksilver, which makes me smile every time I read it because I hate Quicksilver. Uh, but that's a topic for a different, you know, podcast. But there are plenty of options out there for you if you're interested in these crossovers. Uh, a lot of the 90s ones are pretty easy to find if you're interested in them. Uh, the older ones, I think they've been collected in uh, trade paperbacks. And the one that I would really suggest is the JLA Avengers by Busick and uh, George Perez. Uh, it comes in as sort of an absolute style one. And uh, you can still find the single issues like on eBay and at stores. So if you have any questions, uh, I enjoyed this one because I feel like for once I can give someone a really satisfying answer, you know. And I can't make Hawkman make sense, but I can tell someone about all the great crossovers. So if you have any more questions, especially ones that you think I can actually, you know, solve for you, uh, send an email to Tom at Around Comics, and I will talk to all of you later. Bye.
When he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs this week. This week's big Hollywood DVD release is Live Free or Die Hard, the fourth in the Die Hard series, following its predecessor, Die Hard with a Vengeance, a mere dozen years later. A lot has changed since 1995. Bruce Willis has gone from balding to plain out bald, Kevin Smith has stopped by to make an appearance, and the studio decided to go for a PG-13 rating, meaning you'll see plenty of people get killed, but you won't quite hear John McClane's beloved catchphrase, yippee motherfucker. Yeah, I hope this podcast is rated PG-13. Also out this week is Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. If you've ever watched Apocalypse Now and wondered, how did they avoid going crazy making that movie? Well, the answer is they didn't really, and you can see all the insanity and fascinating detail in this documentary, which is making its long-awaited debut on DVD. Here, director Francis Ford Coppola talk about killing himself. See star Martin Sheen slice open his hand while filming a scene. Watch Marlon Brando show up way overweight and woefully unprepared. Wonder just how stoned Dennis Hopper really is. All that and a teenage Lawrence Fishburne long before he became Morpheus. Hearts of Darkness is such an unbelievable movie that it's almost as good as Apocalypse Now, and that's no small compliment. This week's DVD pick is another documentary, Cinemania, which focuses on movie fans who are so insanely dedicated to cinema that they make most comic book fans look like healthy, well-adjusted members of society by comparison. The five New Yorkers spotlighted in this movie go to hundreds of films a year, foregoing jobs, romance, family, and friendships to support their love of film. We follow them into theaters, we follow them home, and we follow them around the Big Apple as they desperately try to catch every movie they possibly can. One woman has an apartment packed, and I mean packed, with film festival programs, flyers, and Burger King giveaway cups. One guy has an amazing collection of movie soundtrack LPs, and no record player to listen to them on. And one guy has the phone number of several projection booths, so he can call at a moment's notice and inquire about the condition of a particular print. Think comic book fans are alone in their obsession with mint condition? Think again. There are so many amazing moments in Cinemania that it's hard to pick a favorite, but I have to admit one of mine is when Jack admits he deliberately eats meals he knows will constipate him, so he doesn't have to worry about leaving a movie in the middle to go to the bathroom. Now that is dedication. Cinemania is a sort of documentary that's both funny and sad. It might make you feel a little bit better about your own life, but it'll probably make you feel a whole lot worse about humanity in general. That's the DVD Report, and I'm Will Piper for Round Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com. And that'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussion about the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comic Space. And if you like the show, you can leave a review at the iTunes Music Store. I want to thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again next Monday for another edition of the Comic Culture Podcast. 
In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. My loving baby, now you gone. Got my love, baby, now you gone. I know you didn't love it, baby. I know you did me wrong. Let me come home. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got to, got to love you. Love in good, now you're gone and